Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Ben has just turned 4 o'clock and it is time for Tuesday Home Time until 6 o'clock this evening. First up, we'll be hearing from Mr Kevin Healy, but before that, part one with Fra Humes, whose childhood was spent in Northern Ireland and later talking about journeys to Palestine and the Middle East. A booklet outlining the history of Libya and particularly how the West destroyed this once prosperous country. I'll be speaking with Joan Coxedge. She's written a little booklet. Sri Lanka is now being called a failed state, at least by human rights activist Dr Brian Sinuaratna. And looking back at the campaign to force BHP to clean up its act at Octeti in PNG and today's campaign to stop deep sea mining off the coast of PNG, I'll be speaking with Dr Helen Rosenbaum. But first, as I said, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jade listener, when good news as the government assures us post-blowing the safest blue ribbon caring business class party seat in the country, it has heard what the electorate has said and will heed the lessons. Given history repeats itself, that's the good news, as it's reassuring to note that after similar electoral disasters when the dedicated practitioners of parliamentary democracy always assure us they have heard what the electorate has said and would heed the lessons they never do, they never have. To be fair, this government may break the mould as it has immediately promised to assist the most needy in our society, the very victims of its caring business class policies, introducing a $5 billion dole relief fund, an exciting boon to the unemployed. Although the timing is interesting as last week we learned we have full employment now that we have 5% unemployment, which in itself in microcosmic form reflects the logic of the greatest little economic order of them all. But exciting news. Sorry, sorry, what was that? Why? I haven't seen you for a while on the back bench there. It's the new daddy, former he seed and cheap shit party, big supremo barnacle. I misheard. Not doll relief, it's oh, drought relief. Sorry, Barnacle. Uh, so, Barnacle, for the full employment unemployed, the drought goes on. Uh, yes, yes, I agree with that, Barnacle. The best form of welfare is a job, and we simply can't afford to support all these bludgers. No, good point, good point. Friday, the ABC breakfast announcer told us she had conducted an interview with Barnacle about the $5 billion handout we could afford, and I thought... Gee, sorry I missed that. Wouldn't it have been in-depth stuff? Then, of course, the government and its socialist opposite delivered an apology to the victims of institutional sex abuse, and we laud that, although we could say none too soon, and they said they would do all they can to assist the victims, many as they reach old age remaining blighted for life. Uh, So you'll give them the full compensation package recommended by the Royal Commission. Uh, Let me restate that. Almost all we can. Meanwhile, across the Pacific, as anyone who has slightly criticised US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, 
as if anyone could find anything to criticise Donald over, slightly criticised, has received a pipe bomb in the mail, and Donald said it was down to the fake news media which had divided the nation. Uh, but, but how have they done that, Donald? By reporting what I say and what I tweet. Bad, bad. The biggest divide the nation ever. Uh, but how is that fake news to report what you say and tweet? Because it means what they're reporting is fake. And on which Donald said and tweeted this slow-moving caravan, a pedestrian caravan of Central American refugees, were Middle Eastern terrorists. And when asked how he knew, yet again he made satire redundant. I have no proof, but they could be. I mean, how do we compete with that? In the Middle East, where the real terrorists are Donald's closest friends, his very, very, very close friend, the Crown Prince, said the guilty would be punished for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, and the Crown Prince felt Khashoggi's family and friends pain and had absolutely no knowledge of that which has caused him such pain, such empathetic pain, although on one level we guess he is suffering a bit of pain over the whole thing, and in version 138 of just how the deceased was murdered or dreadful accidentally killed, perhaps it was evil women driving all the way to Istanbul with no man, no family relative to escort them, throwing off their burkas and impersonating thick, thuggish-looking men off with their heads. And we look forward to version 130 next week and 131 the next week. And the one certainty is Donald's very, very, very close friend had nothing to do with it. I've no idea why Donald's fake news claims remind me of this. Big Supremo scuttled them more last time has promised an energy policy which will save households $800 plus a year, while the relevant department says savings will be more like $100 plus a year, but apparently scuttled them and the team have found one customer out there somewhere who, if the stars align, could in certain circumstances, possibly all things being unequal, maybe, if the omens are positive, save up to 800 I hope you're not suggesting we're trying to mislead people. After all, we heard what the electorate said and have taken the lessons on board. Oh, Scuttle, then, we'd never suggest that. We, we don't have to. And the good news through all these exciting announcements and huge $800 savings is that addressing climate change will take care of itself. Not that it's got much choice, given the government's doing nothing about it, but scuttle them and the gang of deniers tell us that's their guarantee we'll meet our commitments, address that which they deny without lifting a finger, other than giving us all the finger. And there's got to be something said about our government's not doing anything on one level that's, that's got to be the safest thing, except when they're doing something about doing nothing. Reflected in the latest polls, which have both scuttled them and Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, little Billy Shorten ambition in negative territory, as they call it. In other words, the majority want neither, which shows the levels of excitement gripping the nation at the choice we're offered. Back here this week again, evil unions and workers invaded the streets of Melbourne, among other, other, other places, bringing class warfare onto the streets, disrupting business, and so incensing Lord Rupert of Wapping and the Spencer Street, no longer Spencer Street, no longer Fairfax lots. 
don't they, the evil unions and lazy avaricious workers, know the economy can't afford their outrageous demands like decent wages and conditions unless they do something about their productivity, which has achieved nothing more than record profits. I mean, the productivity the caring employers are so upset about shows how lazy they are, and asking for decent wages in these circumstances highlights their avarice. And thinking there is some sort of vague relationship between record profits and wages also shows they have no concern whatever for the interests of the hard-working shareholders. What's marching in the street demanding wages and conditions doing for productivity in this country? Surprising report from one of the big four international accounting behemoths showing four out of five true blue Aussies believe banks act unethically and three out of four true blue Aussies believe banks take no responsibility for their mistakes and don't keep their promises. Surprising. Oh, not that 80 and 75% think that way, but that 20 and 25% think they do act ethically and take responsibility. Where have they been? Okay, some of the 20 and 25 fell into the not sure department, but what's there to be not sure about? And the unethical, don't accept responsibility, don't keep their promises lot, are the responsible, independent directors to whom our Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Kelly Oda-Wire, workers so evil, wants to hand all that lovely, lovely workers super money. Because evil unions lack the expertise and independence the banks and great financial institutions bring, the ethics. And thus, Kelly, through this necessity, this trap for the evil unions, into the terms of reference of the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission to get the evil unions out of the way of their members' money. And hasn't that worked a treat? Not that they haven't stopped trying. Just yesterday, this, this retail investment advisor bloke called Chris Bricky, real name, said it was wrong to conclude that industry funds outperformed bank-owned funds because they are gut investors. Beat bank-owned funds were his words. The main reason industry funds have performed better is their use of unlisted assets such as property and infrastructure, which have performed very well over many years. I'm not sure that makes his point. Our view is that fees and asset allocation account for almost all of the differences in performance. Sorry, Chris, but that one, the fees bit, makes our point. He was commenting on an interim productivity profits commission report with a final report to Kelly and the team due by year's end on, quote, making the super system more competitive and efficient, which we assume poor Kelly's banking on, so to speak, to succeed where her royal commission genius idea blew up in her face. But she pushes on in the relentless struggle against evil. Last week, Kelly was granted leave to appear on the side of caring labour hire employer Work Pack the Profits in a federal court case aiming to overthrow an earlier decision that a so-called employee, a casual worker, must be paid accrued annual leave as well as other permanent employee entitlements because he worked regular and predictable hours. This, Kelly and the caring employer screamed injustice, was double-dipping because casual rates allowed for the caring employer not meeting those entitlements. Small business, that very heart of the true blue economy, must be able to operate with certainty and clarity of the law, she said. 
the certainty and clarity, apparently, of ripping off their workers. <laughs> no, no, sorry, sorry, Kelly. Kelly is concerned double-dipping workers are ripping off their caring employers. And finally, she knows that in the casual part-time gig economy, all caring employers pay their lazy, avaricious workers every cent they're due. Just ask the hospitality staff along to Grave Street, to Wages Grave Street. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr. Kevin Healy. We'd never do that, Freddie. Excellent. We're planning such a good time with you, Freddie. Come to the screening of Bohemian Rhapsody on Thursday, November the 8th from 6.30pm at Palace Westgarth Cinemas and have a real good time with Freddie Mercury and Queen. Tickets are 25 full, $20 concession online at 3cr.org.au or from the station, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. You can also call 9419 8377 during business hours. All funds raised go to keeping 3CR on air. Stop me now. If you want to have a good time, just give me a call. Stop, stop me now. Have a good time. Stop, stop, yes, have a good time. People from many backgrounds around the world work in many different ways for peace with justice for Palestinians. Frau Hughes from Belfast, Northern Ireland, is one who has taken his activism right to Palestine a number of times as he details in his diary, An Activist's Tale, My Walk with Palestine. Today, the first of a two-part interview with Fra. Fra, your journey for peace with justice surely begins not with Palestine, but with Northern Ireland, the country of your birth. What did you learn as you grow up about the centuries-long colonisation and the present situation for the Catholic population in Northern Ireland? I was born in 1963, which means I was six technically when the troubles kind of recently kicked off. In 1969, I would have just actually have started maybe P2, which would be the second class in the primary school. So when I was kind of coming 10, 11, 12, 13, with having like armed British troops on the streets and roadblocks going into the city centre, vehicle checkpoints, not that there were that many cars, you know, in, in the early 1970s in, in Belfast, it was a sign of affluence. I think there was like one car in our street that I vaguely remember growing up, but uh, there was a sectarian tensions and there was a war between uh, the Republican IRA, the British Army and the locally raised kind of militia, the Royal Ulster Constabulary. So as I grew up, I witnessed like what I would call as an Irish person living here in an occupied sectarian state, you know, not knowing maybe what the term was then. Uh, I would have seen oppression on the streets and I would have grown up thinking, well, why have we got armed soldiers on our streets? Why isn't it safe for me to walk any major distance of like more than a kilometre in any direction from my own front door? Because I grew up in North Belfast and that's kind of the sectarian cockpit of the troubles uh, here in Belfast. And it's a microcosm of the north in itself, I think, one-third of all the fatalities and all the killings and the, and the bombings or whatever actually occurred in North Belfast. And because of the polarization and sectarianization 
of the population. Then I grew up in a Catholic nationalist Republican Irish area, so people who perceive themselves as Irish are normally Catholic because Ireland was a Catholic state before you know, the Reformation and before the complete English kind of occupation, colonization. So I grew up in a Roman Catholic, nationalist, Republican, Irish area. And because of the demographics and because of the sectarian nature of the city and because people chose not to live together, and that's mainly like, I would say, the Protestant, pro-British, unionist, loyalist community, the, they chose not to live with their Catholic neighbours because I perceive them to be colonisers, the way you have the white colonisation of South Africa, you had the white European colonisation of Australia. I'm wondering for how it was explained to you as a child, what you were witnessing. Obviously you're growing up, it's the violence is an everyday part of your life. So you start asking questions, so I suppose you learn your history partly from your family, partly from your community and partly from your school. I don't necessarily mean like being taught Irish history because we weren't really taught Irish history uh, in school. But, you know, your school is part of your community. The people you grew up with, you have conversations. Older people in the school that you talk to, there's graffiti on the wall. You ask questions of people in your community, uh, your friends and neighbours and your family. I suppose, I mean, there was no real internet and there weren't really heavy books to read, but... I would have grown up then with uh, why do we have British troops on the street and why the IRA and the conflict with them. And then I would, would have been told about the sectarian nature of the state, which goes down to partition in 1920, which goes back to 1916 when you had the uh, Easter Rebellion, which goes back to 1912 when you had the call for Home Rule, when 80% of the people in Ireland voted for Home Rule, which is a form of division from Britain, not complete separation. And even though Britain came to be Democrats, they refused to allow that referendum vote to become law. Then you had the UVF and the gun running, and you had the threat of the Ulster Protestants that uh, Ulster would fight and Ulster would be right, that you would have a civil war if Ireland tried to leave Britain. And then, to put all that in context, you have to go back to why do you have Roman Catholic Irish people who want reunification, and why have you got Protestant British people who want to maintain the link with Britain? And then you go back to the plantation of Ulster, which was a form of civil colonisation inspired by the monarchy back in the day as a form of controlling the Irish question by controlling Irish land and Irish property and Irish exports and harvests. And that takes you back to the plantation. So I grew up under what I saw British foreign military colonial occupation. And then when I heard things happening in Palestine, then I thought to myself, I know what Ireland's been like under British occupation, and this sounds very similar to Palestine under British occupation. So a colonial imperialist power, which was in Kenya and South Africa and America and controlled every country in the world bar 22, has left you know, a very serious kind of bloody legacy of division and sectarianism nearly everywhere that bloody hand of British imperialism has landed. How did you find out about Palestine in the first place? Well, I mean, we didn't have television. I mean, we didn't get colour TVs until the 1970s, but part of that would have been, I would have heard things on the television. My first real memory would be, you see, apart from, we, we used to have, like, political murals on the walls in Belfast. We still have them. 
the newspapers never represented my views or the views of my community because they were they were they were owned by the British and the Unionists, and the television was the same. So we got a lot of propaganda. We would, you know, I could witness something like street confrontation between the British Army and, and some of the people living here, and then it would go on television, and what I heard bore no resemblance to what actually happened. It was very propagandized, very one-sided. We had the political murals on the walls, and what that was like political. You could get the feeling of where the community was by what people put on the wall as their representations. So I actually saw a thing that had like IRA, PLO, both holding what looked to be like an RPG, uh, which was on uh, one of the main thoroughfares in West Belfast. So uh, it had like one people, one struggle, one world. Then my first major, major, major recollection was after we had the hunger strikes here in 1981, was 1982, whenever I was watching on television the PLO being kind of removed from Beirut and going to Tunisia and Algeria and Cyprus and basically whatever remnants of a military army and organization they had was was like broken up and gone and the army was like balkanized in a way and sent out of the and I remember saying to myself when I was watching this on the television what's the PLO doing in Beirut if it's a Palestine liberation organization why is it in Palestine and it was a question that stuck in my mind now I would have been being what, 19 then, in, uh, in 1982, and that's kind of the first time that it really kind of sank into me, and compounded with that was the massacres in Shabra and Shatia at the same time. So the PLO were effectively moved out of Beirut, facilitated by the Americans, and that's when you started thinking about, you know, what role is America playing in the geopolitics of the, of the Middle East? But that massacre in Shabba and Shatia, that stuck with me. But as I say, no, no internet. And like I would read papers back to front, but I'm not a great guy for going to the library and picking up books and, and educating myself through that. But newspapers would have kept me informed with what was going on. But then it wouldn't have been, John, until about 2009 when I went on to social media that I started getting what I would consider to be that alternative media, that kind of anti-governmental propaganda, almost in real time, something happening somewhere else in the world within 10 or 15 or 20 minutes could be on your internet feed, and you could be seeing something that was in complete contrast to what you're being told officially by your government through what you're told to be is a free press. Neutral is supposed to give you the information and you're supposed to draw your conclusions from that, whereas what we actually get is sanitized propaganda, which is used in order to manipulate public discourse and public narrative for the foreign policy of your government, whatever that foreign policy happens to be. Did you find a Palestine support group? Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly what happened. In 2009, I, I had a guest house and I had a lot of... Uh, downtime and I actually got a laptop and stuff in order to take bookings online. I started going on Facebook. I started seeing other people uh, putting up posts about Palestine and then I found out that there were a couple of events in Belfast. So we had a local support group, the Irish Palestine Solidarity Campaign, which is still, still going today. I went to one or two of their public meetings and Hedy Epstein was there and McNapier from Scotland was this and then talking. I gave all my details saying I was very interested in getting involved but I'm convinced as it happens it's just an organisational blip and people don't follow these things up. They take all the names and they take all your emails and they take all your details and then don't follow it up. I ended up meeting some like-minded individuals in and around 2010 
we were watching the progress of the second flotilla, the first international flotilla, going from Turkey and Cyprus to Palestine. And we decided that we were going to go down and hold like a protest at Belfast City Hall uh, because there wasn't a protest organised for Belfast and the IPSC were going to their sister organisation in Dublin. We were concerned that the people on the Mavi Mamara, which was one of the lead boats, they'd, everyone on the flotilla would be arrested. We wanted to protest that, but we didn't realise that on the day that the Israeli commandos from helicopters and from Soviet uh, boats uh, shot and murdered uh, unarmed innocent humanitarians who were taking medical aid to Gaza, and that really kind of, for me, galvanised me into the next step, which was going on a convoy to Gaza then, having become kind of, I'm going to say politicised and radicalised, but, but it's not true. It just became aware of the reality on the ground. And what I found with my activism is, once you become aware or awake as to what's happening, you no longer have an excuse not to get involved. I mean, I go to a lot of protests about different things, about Yemen and about Syria and stuff along with Palestine. And I was at a meeting last night about how Brexit would affect the Republican Socialist narrative in Ireland. Because once, once you know what's happening, then it's incumbent upon you to try and do something to stop that, even if it's just using your voice, raising a flag and attending a protest. Nevertheless, it's a long way from Belfast to Gaza. Tell you exactly how far it was. It was 36 days away because we formed this kind of support group, and out of that became friendly with Dr. Saeb Shaf, who was a former uh, Palestinian representative to Ireland, and he said to me, you know, if you want to show true solidarity, like raising money and sending it off to the, the hospital in Gaza is one thing, but actually going to Gaza is another. And he, he put that an idea in my head, and I have to be honest with you, I thought, here, whoa, 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 they're, they're bombing people in Gaza, like. It is. It's, it's a one-sided war zone. I mean, obviously, you've got the fourth and fifth largest uh, army in the world attacking people who don't have tanks, don't have a navy, don't have an air force. You know, you have Apache helicopters against kids with stones and guys with machine guns. It's a very unequal uh, battle. But at the same time, I thought to myself, I suppose this is when things are put up to you, John. You know, are you gonna like? Are you gonna walk the walk? Are you just gonna talk the talk? So, I joined uh, Viva Palestina Five which was an organisation that was inspired by George Galloway to take medical aid from Ireland, Britain, through France, then through Italy, then through Greece, then through Turkey, then through Syria, to go to Gaza in September, October uh, 2010. What was the solidarity like along the way in all those days? The solidarity was fantastic because you, what, what, what you had were a collection of strangers coming together on the convoy, obviously. We had people from Malaysia. We had people from Australia. We had Julie Webb-Pullman, who is still in uh, Gaza, working for, is it Gaza.org? I don't know if that's Australian or New Zealand, but I think she was Australian. I'm really sure about that. People from uh, New Zealand as well. So what, 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 you had a collection of, you had Muslim brothers and sisters who I assume were doing this for religious purposes of, of reaching out to their brothers and sisters in humanity. Then you had humanitarians who believed that they should try and break the siege because remember, I mean, bringing the convoy, bringing the medical aid on the convoy was, was like a symptom of what we were trying to do, which was literally to break the siege and get feet and eyes on the ground in Gaza to be witnesses as to what was happening. And then you had... People like myself were politically inspired who felt there's a, there's, there's a duty on people to, uh, 
be perceived. And then along the way, in different places, I mean, we went through a lot of the capitals, like Paris and stuff, and with all the decals on the side of the vehicles and ours, we had, like, uh, Belfast to Gaza, and we had a child holding the Palestinian key, you know, representative of the right of return for the refugees. And we rode along the side of our bus on one side. We put the laughter of our children will be our revenge. Now, that's a quote by Bobby Sands, the IRA uh, hunger striker. And on the other side, we put Tell the Children of Jerusalem They Are Not Alone. to were lyrics by David Rubik, a Jewish-American folk singer. He's, he's a fantastic guy. We had the camaraderie and the, and the growing together of the convoy going through this prolonged sojourn, really, to Gaza. And then as we went through the cities, we got a lot of support support we've got people you know waving smiling and, and beeping the horn so breaking the siege and raising the awareness was the rationale and reasoning for the for the convoy and part of which because Egypt was under uh, Mubarak at the time we had to stay in Latakia in Syria for 16 days waiting for the Egyptians to give us permission to travel from Latakia to Alaris in Egypt and from Alaris to Rafa and from Rafa then on into Gaza and we actually got into Gaza on my birthday, which is the 21st of October, 2010, I stayed for three days, and then we all flew home from Carroll. What did you take with you? Can you explain a little bit more about the goods that you took? Different people took different things. Well, so what was so there was the fundraising in Belfast, and from that then we bought this 13-seater uh, wheelchair accessible uh, minibus, which we were donating to the Alta Hospital. And there's a story in you know in that in itself. We went on the eBay looking to buy a vehicle, and I was looking to to find something local, you know, maybe like 5, 10, 15, 20 miles from Belfast. We ended up getting a, getting this 13-seater wheelchair accessible minibus from somewhere in Wales. And when we explained to the guys what we wanted to buy, they said, first of all, they would bring it to the, the port in Wales and we could sail over from Dublin and pick it up. Then they said that they would actually come over in the boat and deliver it to us in Dublin. And then eventually they just said, you know what, we agree with what you're doing. And they drove the minibus all the way to Belfast. So that in itself shows you how through raising awareness and becoming active you can motivate other people to do not anything extraordinary but it's certainly out of the ordinary for someone who's selling you a vehicle to drive it all to your to drive it to your front door and then just charge you the price of uh, the vehicle itself. And that's part one of the story of activist Fra Hughes. A little bit of background for his childhood and his first visit to the Middle East and following on part two we'll hear more about subsequent visits to the Middle East and where he is now with activism. The 2018 Autonomy and Resistance Gathering, a three-day conference on Indigenous and grassroots struggles across Latin America, Asia Pacific and beyond. Topics include decolonisation, land defence from multinationals, autonomy and self-determination, prisons and criminalisation, visions for development beyond neoliberal capitalism, colonialism and patriarchy. Speakers including Christy Lee Horsewood from the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, Mariki Onis from the Jafarong Embassy, Bazak Gal, Kurdish activist from the Kurdish Democratic Community Centre and much more. November 2nd, 3rd and 4th at Trades Hall in Melbourne, Nam. For more information, look up Autonomy and Resistance Gathering 2018 on Facebook. Proud 3CR supporter. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step 3 is finding there's a tactic 
when everyone believes it could be true that if all the people work collectively there just might be something we can do and everything can change some facts about libya subtitled how the west destroyed this once prosperous nation is written by social and political activist joan coxage i spoke with joan yesterday and began by looking at the geographic position of libya with its large coastline on the Mediterranean Sea and said that I could imagine that over the centuries any number of countries and empires would have tried and possibly succeeded to invade and plunder Libya. Well, it's certainly true because you could say, I suppose, for most of the 20th century and even further back that they have been um, subjected to varying degrees of foreign control. You go right back to Phoenicians, Carthaginians, Greeks, Romans, Vandals, Byzantines, right up to their last 20th century oppressor, which were the Italians. And they occupied the country in 1911. And they claimed back then it was a war of liberation against Ottoman rule when it was really an effort to re-establish a Roman Empire in Africa because of the strategic position of Libya. In 1920, the Italian government recognised Sheikh Sidi Idris as the hereditary head of a nomadic tribe. He eventually became king of the free Libyan state. But after dictator Benito Mussolini came to power, fighting became quite ferocious, actually, and his appointee, General Badoglio, he waged a ferocious pacification war, and in 1922, Idris fled to Egypt... His successor, General Graziani, was even worse. He was a brutal man and he was given carte blanche by Mussolini to crush any signs of Libyan resistance. And what Graziani did, he enclosed a large slab of the desert with barbed wire and he incarcerated the entire population in a huge concentration camp and more than 300,000 died in the most atrocious conditions. In 1943, you know, World War II was nearly over, the Allied forces kicked the Italians out, and in 1944, Idris returned from exile. Under the terms of the 1947 peace treaty, Italy relinquished all claims to Libya, and in November 1949, the UN General Assembly passed a resolution that Libya should become an independent state with King Idris Back then he was a close ally of Britain and he re- represented Libya in all subsequent UN negotiations. And then in 1951 Libya declared its independence and became a constitutional and hereditary monarchy, the first country to achieve independence through the UN back then. And then oil was discovered in 1959 and Libya, which up until then had been one of the world's poorest nations, became extraordinarily rich. Except the problem was the wealth was concentrated in the hands of the few and in typical colonial fashion, Idris handed over Libya's natural resources to his new European masters. People became very angry. There were increasing calls for a unified Arab entity And then in 1969, and he was inspired by NASA in Egypt, Colonel Gaddafi, as he was back then, and a small group of army officers staged a coup d'etat and kicked out the Ali Idris who returned to Egypt. 
and the new regime, headed by the Revolutionary Command Council, abolished the monarchy and proclaimed a new Libyan Arab Republic with the slogan, Freedom, Socialism and Unity with Gaddafi as its leader. I bet that didn't go down too well. It went down extraordinarily badly. And in fact, Gaddafi was never, ever forgiven because one of his first acts was to close down British and US military bases. That would have gone down extraordinarily well. Nationalise the oil, for which he was never forgiven, and provide free health care and free education for the Libyan people. I don't think people appreciate what a progressive country it was under Gaddafi. For example, they were provided not only with free education and free health care that I mentioned, but also free housing, electricity, subsidised food and interest-free loans. And back then, women wore Western clothes. They went to work. They attended university. And if the people, the Libyans, wanted to farm, they were given a farmhouse, land, livestock and seeds, all free of charge. And their state bank provided loans at naught. 0% interest as set out in law. And when you think of what Libya is now, back then there were no terrorists. More than 60 countries had embassies in Tripoli, along with dozens of multinationals. And one of Gaddafi's closest friends was Nelson Mandela. While the West was flat out supporting the oppressive white regime, Mandela never forgot Libya's support during the bitter anti-apartheid struggle. And that was a friendship that was barely acknowledged in the West. I suspect very few people know of that close relationship. When Mandela became South Africa's first black president in 1994, he rejected enormous pressure from Western leaders to sever all ties with Gaddafi. You can imagine the headlines, screaming headlines, that he was accused of supporting terrorism, etc., etc. He also refused, Mandela refused to cancel an official state visit to Libya, to his great credit. Mandela responded to the screaming media headlines with, no country can claim to be the policeman of the world and no state can dictate to another what it should do. If only that was true here. And those that yesterday were friends of our enemies have the gall to tell me not to visit my brother Gaddafi. And one of the, I think one of the funniest incidents happened in March 1988 when President Bill Clinton visited South Africa at a very official visit. He was told in no uncertain terms by Mandela that I have also invited brother leader Gaddafi to this country. I do so because our moral authority dictates that we should not abandon those who helped us in our darkest hour. And I like this bit particularly. And those who berated me for being loyal to our friends can literally go and jump in a pool. It's been reported that Clinton was said to have remained smiling throughout the event, I imagine with gritted teeth. I'd imagine another group of people who wouldn't have been very happy with Gaddafi was the, the Israelis No, and his support for Palestine. Well, that's right. Oh, absolutely. Well, And America. Oh, they, the two are like the twins, aren't they? Tw- evil twins, actually. Are you aware of what he was able to do for the Palestinians? Or was yes, it- he did. He, hel- he helped them financially and he also provided uh, refuge for Palestinians. And in fact, my first visit to Libya took place in 1979 and I was invited to take part in a conference on Palestine and they reckon at the time it was the only country in the world that could have hosted such a, a conference. 
I found it intensely interesting. And it certainly wasn't a popular subject in Australia, but I always believed that the Palestinians got a lousy deal when the world salved its conscience by giving away their land after World War II, and look what's happened to them now. Can you remember any of that conference? I can, actually, quite clearly. It was very, very interesting, and it was very well organised. It started off in Tripoli, that's where the conference was actually held, and security is extraordinarily tight, as you can imagine, because Palestinian leaders were flying in from all around the world, and they came in using aliases because, of course, they had a price on their heads. Many of their numbers had been assassinated by Israeli hit squads. Gaddafi opened the conference. I met George Habash. He died a few years ago now, but he was the head of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, and there were loads of other leaders, and Vanessa Redgrave was the tall, very handsome British actress. And it was the first time that the Sandinista government in Nicaragua had actually um, formally, they'd just been newly elected, and they had a delegation there, and that there was their debut on the international stage, and we gave them a huge, rousing reception, as you can imagine. It was just very interesting. I did give a paper at that time, not sure how well it went down, but I did just the same, called The Impact of US Imperialism on Australia. Every chance I got, you see, I'd be raising the fact that we're just little satellites and things have got even worse if it's possible. On your two trips there, did you get to see more of the countryside? I know it's a lot of it's desert, but there's also near the coastal areas, it's a very fertile It's a very very fertile area and what people don't realise that way, way back in time there used to be lions and tigers and forests and all sorts of things. Yes, I did because they also have some of the uh, most fabulous uh, Greco-Roman ruins anywhere in the world and I was lucky enough to be able to um, visit um, Sabrata Leptis Magna And, of course, there were no tourists, which made it even better. I remember going to Leptis Magna, which was this magnificent site right on the Mediterranean and the sheer beauty of the place. You can imagine the bright blue Mediterranean, the bright blue sky, and there was an old Italian bloke just pottering around amongst the ruins. I just decided I'd like to be an archaeologist, actually. And I, I walked down streets where you could still see the ruts from chariot wheels, ancient chariot wheels, the remains of houses where people had lived and worked until the end of the 4th or 5th century. And there were still grooves on a stone counter made by ancient butchers and fishmongers when they sharpened their massive knives. And one of the most fascinating was the, the hunting bars. This was in uh, El Leptis Magna. The domes and vaults had been buried under sand, which had protected them, actually, for 15 centuries As I say, nobody was in a rush to uncover all this. And there was a vast expanse of stuff that had never, ever actually been uncovered. This was just the bits that they had opened up. The baths, unbelievably, still worked. They were 2,000 years old and they still worked. Was that your first visit or your second visit? This was during my first visit there. And I saw them again in my second visit. And I just have never forgotten it. It was just something that stuck in my mind because... I went there with a couple of other delegates from the uh, conference because I stayed on at the end of the conference, tried to see as much as I could of Libya before I came back to Australia and I've never forgotten it. And I worry now enormously about what's happened to all that beauty 
and all those wonderful ruins. But I went back again in 1989. That was my second visit there. And that was because um, it really did look very, very serious politically. Washington was accusing Libya of building a chemical weapons plant and was getting quite hysterical about it. It looked as if uh, World War Three was about to break out because back then you had Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was the president back then. And I think, you know, he was half whacked. He probably didn't make the decisions anyway, but it was increasingly hysterical, the sort of uh, attacks they were making on Libya. What they were saying was that a satellite had pinpointed a construction site at Rabta, which is about 85 kilometres from Tripoli. So we got all the load of public relations bullshit about Libya threatening world peace and that echoed around the world I think for most of January in 1989 and so what happened was is people became so concerned that groups from around the world decided that they would go to Libya that they would act as uh, human shields yes what happened made it even more if you like more tense was in 1986 US warplanes had bombed Tripoli and actually killed quite a number of people including Gaddafi's infant daughter took us to the house and showed us all the desecration that had taken place then two American F-14 fighter pilots chanting good kill, good kill shot down two Libyan planes over the Mediterranean claiming self-defence, which again was uh, exacerbating the global tensions. So small groups came from around the world, travelled to Libya to act as human shields to hopefully encourage people to talk and not start trying to start World War Three. I'm speaking with political and social activist Joan Coxidge and the topic is Libya. Was that the beginning of human shields? Because we've had that with Iraq, didn't we? And we did. I don't recall hearing it before. And so that was 89 anyway, when, when quite a lot of people around the world and a group from Australia decided that it wouldn't be a bad idea if we went too, and we did. And you can imagine the hysteria of the media in this country when it was known what we were doing and that they decided in advance that we had to find Libya guilty as charged before we'd even got there. During that period, we met many, many different Libyans, including Gaddafi. We were one of the very privileged people to meet him in a private audience, and that was in his Bedouin tent in the middle of the Azizia barracks in Tripoli. And we had a, a quite a long and detailed conversation with Gaddafi. We also met Libya's deputy prime minister at the same time. He made the pertinent point, and I think we'd agree with that, that he said that prior to 1969, all of Libya's resources went to overseas capitalists. And he said, the shock of its revolution was so profound that Western reaction remained one of undiluted hatred. Despite its style of democracy being a consecration of what we aspire to here, which is to, you know, by Voltaire and the rights of man, but it's never been, they've never been realised, our aspirations, because our governments always get their orders from Washington. And, of course, Libya is only one of many countries who have bucked the system and paid the price. Paid a hell of a price. And what happened anyhow, eventually we, we were driven to Rapta, and, but we couldn't really tell what was going on because a huge tent city had sprung up and it wasn't close enough for us to pass judgment one way or, or another. So we kept vigil anyhow for many weeks, singing, holding hands, doing what you do when you're on a vigil. 
And you could say that the furore over Libya lasted for nearly all of January and it collapsed with the end of Reagan's presidency. And then a story came out buried on page 17 in the New York Times on the 2nd of March 1990, totally ignored by our media, and it stated that the White House officials admitted that the Farmer 150 plant at Raptor was not going to manufacture chemical weapons after all, but was being converted that was their word, into a pharmaceutical plant, which was precisely what the Libyans had been saying all along. I'd like to add something too to this, Joan, the fact that when Gaddafi came in, I'm quite sure he, he did some things that weren't perfect, but on the whole he looked after his people. That's right. He also looked after the people of the country south of Libya. Yes. And when Libya was invaded and fell apart, a lot of the people from those countries suffered greatly because they'd been, in a sense, dependent on aid from Libya. Yes, you're absolutely right, and they they did rely very heavily, and so it it, it affected not only the Libyan people, but in fact the the region as a whole, because he had given, as I mentioned, enormous support to Mandela during the anti-apartheid struggles, and that was symptomatic of what he was doing throughout the continent. He Libya was one of the richest countries in Africa and as such he was a leader but he was never forgiven because he nationalised the oil and because he kicked out foreign bases, foreign military bases and unfortunately he paid a hell of a price. But it comes down to biological and chemical weapons. The hypocrisy went even deeper than what they tried to do and pretend that Rapka was going to to manufacture chemical weapons was crap. But uh, Seymour Hirsch actually did some investigation. He's a very well-known investigative journalist, a very reputable one. And he reported at the time that the U.S. Army Research Facility at Fort Detrick, which many of your listeners will know of that, they carried out some of the world's most diabolical experiments. Mosquitoes, fleas and house flies were being infected with a mixture of yellow fever, malaria, dengue, cholera, anthrax and dysentery and while laboratories contain greenhouses full of deadly microorganisms and chemicals to test their effect on plants and the irony was that in 1985 President Reagan lifted the ban on chemical weapons altogether and in 1988 openly admitted to a sharp increase in spending so while he was holding forth at a conference on chemical weapons in Paris which he had personally convened U.S. scientists were busily upgrading a new generation of binary horrors and special artillery shells to more effectively deliver chemical agents to the battlefield. And the European media described it as as likely to a charity performance sponsored by the mafia to benefit drug victims. It's just the hypocrisy is just, just horrendous. And so when representatives from more than 100 countries looked like agreeing to a total ban was the United States that insisted on shelving the plan. And the people of Cuba know about that, don't they? They certainly do. Well, that's right. There was plenty of evidence to show that they had unleashed a number of deadly microorganisms when I was there. Actually, it might have been the year before I went to Cuba because a lot of people came down with very strange diseases and it could only have come from the unleashing of some of these uh, 
deadly chemical weapons. They've got a track record, unfortunately, the Americans, and you only have to ask yourself, what the hell are they doing now? This is going back a few years. We know they are doing all this, you could say, in the 80s. Well, what are they doing in 2018? And then onto the scene comes Lockerbie. Well, I've written about Lockerbie because I think that's, again, a very complex story. Just to recoup, for a lot of people might have forgotten the details, but on the 21st of December 1988, Pan Am Flight 103 flew out of Frankfurt and stopped at London's Heathrow Airport before continuing on to the United States with another plane. Now, a bomb went off at three minutes past seven at night over Lockerbie in Scotland, killing all 215 people on board and 11 on the ground. Now, had the aircraft flown for another 10 minutes, it would have crossed the Scottish coastline and disappeared into the Atlantic Ocean, along with all the evidence. But the plane was unexpectedly delayed in London. An extensive inquiry was immediately launched to find out who had planted the bomb. Look, the whole episode could have passed into history as simply another airline disaster except that more than two or three decades later there were still too many unanswered questions. How was Libya supposed to be involved? Three years after the crash two Libyans who worked for Libyan Arab Airlines at the Malta airport were formally charged with a crime almost as an afterthought. Long before the investigation ended US and British officialdom appeared anxious to clear Syria and Iran, the prime suspects, and back then, which again is ironic when you look at today's situation, was it because back then Syria had become a Gulf War ally and friend of Washington and that American hostages were held in Lebanon by groups close to Iran. And it's certainly true that within a short space of time the remaining four American hostages were released along with British hostage Terry Waite from Iran. But whatever the reason behind it all, as if by magic, new irrefutable evidence was found to incriminate Libya. Remind people that Libya back then was the least supportive of the Gulf War amongst the Arab nations and least supportive of sanctions against Iraq. And itself, of course, was subject to crippling sanctions. And it was said that Scottish police were said to be furious at the sudden switch Court proceedings started on the 3rd of May 2000 and took place in a specially constructed Scottish court at Camp Zeit near Utrecht in the Netherlands before three judges but without a jury. During the course of the trial, it was shown that one of the accused had a watertight alibi after the defence proved that he was in Sweden at the time of the sabotage, leaving El Megrahi as the sole accused. On the 31st of January 2001, the 82-page indictment from Lord Sutherland, Colesfield and McLean was released to the public and stated that El Megrahi had placed a Samsonite suitcase containing the bomb on a flight from Malta to Frankfurt, which was transferred to a feeder flight to London's Heathrow Airport and then placed on the fatal Pan Am Flight 103. The three judges totally ignored a January 1990 report on Frontline, which is a PBS news program in America, that stated the bomb was placed on the plane at Heathrow when a baggage handler switched a suitcase belonging to a CIA agent, Michael Gannon, with one that was identical. In fact, most of the so-called evidence was as thin as tissue paper. It came from a Libyan 
Abdul Giaka, who rocked up to the US Embassy in Malta offering his services. The CIA was called in and Giaka was put on the payroll. Initially, the judges found the Libyan agent unreliable. But after Mr Giaka was debriefed by US marshals on board a US warship off the Maltese coast, he put El Magrahi and Khalifa in the frame, and it seems we are supposed to believe uh, that among the plane's wreckage, secret agents discovered clothing and the charred remains of a circuit board stained with Semtex. Even more amazingly, among 11,000 pieces of fabric, they came across an item that bore the label Malta Trading Company, and it gets even better. A shopkeeper at one of Malta Trading Company's outlets remembered selling the clothing to an Arab male whose accent appeared to be Libyan. Crucial evidence, according to the three judges, and it didn't seem to faze them that the same shopkeeper, Tony Gauci, had previously made several other erroneous identifications, including one who turned out to be a CIA agent. He'd never met Al Magrahi and only identified him from a photograph which had been widely circulated in the news media for years, or that he'd been paid $2 million by the US and been given expensive holidays by Scottish police in exchange for his evidence. There was another so-called breakthrough when a second piece of circuit board turned up in the rubble and was shown to be part of the timer used in the bomb investigators claim was only sold to Libya. But that was not true, said the Swiss manufacturer. The same timers were sold to numerous groups. But to accept the official version, you would have to believe that the Samsonite suitcase had a charmed life, that it was loaded aboard the Air Malta flight to Frankfurt without an accompanying passenger, transferred in Frankfurt to Pan Am flight 103A to London without an accompanying passenger and then transferred to London to Pan Am Flight 103 to New York without an accompanying passenger when we know that under international airline rules unaccompanied luggage should not be allowed onto aircraft without being searched or x-rayed. Now we know airlines are slack but they're not that slack. And there was no forensic evidence to support the charge that El Magrahi placed the suitcase containing the bomb on Air Malta, tagging it so it would eventually be transferred to Flight 103 in London. And there were no witnesses or fingerprints, nothing at all, to tie him to the suitcase. But they paid a price, didn't they? They paid a hell of a price. Flight 103 took place four days before Christmas on the busy Frankfurt-London-New York corridor, and yet the plane was only two-thirds full of the poor sods that hadn't been tipped off. One was Bernd Carlsen, a UN diplomat from Sweden, who had successfully negotiated the Namibian Accord, which led to free elections and a SWAPO-led government in the former South African colony. Carlsen was on his way to sign the formal agreement at New York's UN headquarters, and apparently the UN had, had been warned but failed to tell its own diplomat. However, Pick Bossa, South Africa's foreign minister, was luckier and switched his reservation. It says early in 1989 it was revealed that Prime Minister Thatcher and President George Bush Sr. had held a transatlantic telephone conversation about Flight 103 and agreed the investigation should be limited to avoid harming their intelligence communities. On the 16th of February 1990, 
a group of British relatives of the Lockerbie victims went to the US Embassy in London to meet members of the President's Commission on Aviation Security and Terrorism. After the meeting, Martin Cadman from the UK chatted with two of the Commission members, later telling the group that one of the officials had told him, your government and our government know exactly what happened at Lockerbie, but they are not going to tell you. Long forgotten is the dreadful prelude to this diabolical series of events, the shooting down of Iran Air Flight 655 in the Persian Gulf in July 1988 by a US warship. The missile fired from the American ship that was illegally sailing inside Iranian territorial waters killed 290 people, including 66 children. Washington sought to justify its crime by claiming the airline was probably on a suicide mission to fly into the ship claims it could not substantiate. The US refused to apologise or pay compensation to the families of the dead, but went on to decorate the two ship's commanders. Finally, Joan, move forward to 2018, and um, as you said in the title of this little booklet, How the West Destroyed This Once Prosperous Nation. Today, several terrorist groups, including ISIS and Al-Qaeda, have established a strong presence in the country, and Libya is now a haven for human trafficking. Large quantities of weapons from Gaddafi's arsenal have found their way to Mali, Niger, and the Central African Republic, creating instability and mayhem. And Libyan arms and fighters have also found their way into Syria via Turkey. Five years after Gaddafi's murder, this once thriving country is fragmented and in a state of chaos. Despite its vast natural resources, its citizens face hunger, poverty and despair. So far, no one has been held responsible for these crimes against humanity and it's highly unlikely they ever will be. I've been speaking with political and social activist Joan Coxidge about her booklet, 17... 27-page booklet, Some Facts About Libya, How the West Destroyed This Once Prosperous Nation. If you'd like a copy of this booklet, leave a message at the reception here at 3CR and I'll arrange the copy you can get to you. That's Some Facts About Libya, How the West Destroyed This Once Prosperous Nation by Joan Coxhedge. 3CR will be broadcasting live from the steps of the Victorian Parliament House in support of Defend and Extend Public Housing's 10-day vigil. Public housing, everybody's business. Join the Anarchist World this week at Parliament House, 10am to 11am, on two Wednesdays, the 14th and 21st of November. And yes, there is more. Also join Talk Back With Attitude at Parliament House, 10 to 11am, Thursday the 15th and the 22nd of November. Make public housing a significant issue for the forthcoming state election. Join us for these live broadcasts on the steps of the Victorian Parliament House. The headlines in our media vary from crisis to turmoil in Sri Lanka with the country plunged into a constitutional crisis as two men claim to be the Prime Minister after the current President, Sarasena, dismissed the then-current Prime Minister, Wicks Semasing, replacing him with a man accused of human rights abuses, possibly genocide. 
the former president Mahindra Rajapaksa. One person who is not surprised, indeed he predicted something of this would happen, is Sri Lankan-Australian human rights activist Dr Brian Sinaratna. I spoke with Brian yesterday and pointed out that we know what's been happening in the last week, but the question is why. There are several reasons. Number one, getting back to 1948, we were not fit for independence. I mean, that sounds an extraordinary thing to say, but I sincerely think that from the day the British left, Sri Lanka has gone down the hill. Within the year, a million plantation Indian Tamils were disenfranchised and decitizenized. That was the start of the rot. What we are now seeing is the fact that you cannot take a parliamentary system that has evolved over hundreds of years in the UK and transplant it to a third world country and expect it to work. It doesn't work. And what we are seeing now is just a continuation of the process. The constitution has been set aside. The president is acting in an extra-constitutional way. Parliamentary procedures have been thrown out of the window. He does exactly what he likes, and there's nobody to stop him. He can sack the elected prime minister of the country. Just like that. He doesn't have the power to do that. The constitution doesn't allow him to do that. The prime minister can be sacked only if he has lost the majority power in parliament. He hadn't. He has in fact got a majority and parliament has been prorogued to enable him to bribe various people and get the necessary votes for a majority. But right now, if Parliament was not prorogued, which incidentally is also illegal, Mr. President will find that new appointee, Mr. Rajapaksa, does not have the numbers in Parliament. So that Mr. Vikramasinghe, the guy who has been uh, fired, has actually got the numbers. And he quite rightly says, I am staying put. I am the Prime Minister of the country. So we've got now a country unique in the world with two competing prime ministers. I mean, the whole thing is just absolutely ridiculous, but that is what happens when you transplant democracy from a country like England to a third world country where democracy has not evolved, not parliamentary democracy of the British type. So what are we going to do about it? Nothing. Will the West protest? No. Why not? Because they've got nothing to gain. The big winner in this, of course, is China. Because China wants Rajapaksa back. Because he, he's the guy who has sold most of the country to the Chinese. So China is on the side of Rajapaksa. And the rest of the world couldn't give a damn. Brian, just remind us of the past history of Rajapaksa. He's one of the biggest crooks that we've had for a long time. And his brother who was supposedly the secretary, foreign secretary or whatever you want to call it, was actually the de facto president. So we had at that time, the time Rajapaksa was there, a president, elected president, and a de facto president, both as bad as each other. Actually, both of them, particularly uh, Gotabe Rajapaksa, who is incidentally an American citizen, should be marched before the International Criminal Court and charged with genocide. Why have they done it? 
that nobody's interested. And genocide against the Tamil people. Genocide about the Tamil people. You think that that's a harsh word? I have written an article. It's on the net. If you type out my name, Branch and Ratna, and put genocide, the entire article is there. I have justified why I call what has happened in the last year and a half, two years or three years, genocide. And it's continuing. Is it a coup? Where's the military? Nobody knows where the military is. There's an appeal uh, for the military, and I, uh, it's uh, by a group called Friday Forum. They have asked the military, the armed forces and the police, to act with professionalism and discipline and fulfillment of their responsibilities. Will they do it? Probably not, because the military is split half, half for Gautabai Rajapaksa and half for the government, Rani Vikramasinghe's party. But uh, when I say half for the Rajapaksas, it could well be three quarters. And if there is three quarters for Rajapaksa, why should there be a coup? He's the man they wanted. He's a great hero. They've, well, they've got him back. The fact that he is a murderer and uh, a guy uh, who should be hauled up before the International Criminal Court, nobody cares. They don't care. The Rajapaksas don't care. The people in the country are not informed. The papers will not publish anything of the sort. I have sent four articles to the Sri Lankan papers that what is going on in the Tamil North and the East, which incidentally is not under the Sri Lankan government. It is under the Sri Lankan military and police. It's a military stroke police state. Not one of the four articles has been published. Who has control of the media now? Nobody. Uh, nobody has control of anything. Each one is doing what they want. The media publish what they want. If you've got a pull with the, the media, those who have, publish what they want. But it's not a free press, that's for sure. It, it, it's just a, a medium, that's it. <laughs> to say that the place is falling apart is to put it mildly. I wrote an article only yesterday that uh, Sri Lanka is a failed state. And somebody said that's a harsh word to say. I mean, it may be a harsh word to say, but that's the reality of it all. The debt crisis is escalating to the Bank of China alone. This is not the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. The China Bank, Sri Lanka, owes $8 billion U.S. dollars. That's to one bank. They're not going to be able to pay it. So what then happens? China takes over control of quarter of the country. The Chinese built airport in the south of Sri Lanka. They said, well, we'll take it over. You either pay us the $8 million or we'll take the airport over and the harbour. Both of them are built by the Chinese. Have you been monitoring the media in Sri Lanka to ascertain what the people are being told about what's been happening in the last couple of days? No work on my hands without monitoring the Sri Lankan media, because I know the Sri Lankan media can write what they want. The man in the street, the guy who elected Rajapaksa uh, uh, Sena, and Vikramasinghe, the actual people who did the voting, they have no idea what the hell is going on. How safe is social media in Sri Lanka? Getting banned if, it, if they step out of line? Oh, yeah. They'll be banned, all right. They were more than bad. The editor of the uh, newspaper, like Lasanta Vikramatunga, 
who was critical of Rajapaksa, they seemed to be shot. That's what happened to Mr. Vikramatunga, who was a critic of uh, uh, Mahindra Rajapaksa. He was not only killed, but he gave advance notice of the fact that he may be. And after he was killed, the letter that he wrote about his probable execution was published. What does all this mean for the Tamil people in the north and the northeast? It doesn't mean anything. They are not involved. As I said, they are not under the Sri Lankan government. They are under the Sri Lankan military and the police. So whether it is Rajapaksa or Sinsena or Vikramasinghe uh, down in the south, it matters not one damn to them. They just go on being non-people in an area where they cannot exist. They don't have lands. Their lands have been taken over by the military. They don't have an occupation because all the agriculture and fishing that they did had been taken over by the military, and they don't have a job, because the military have taken over the jobs. So they are just existing, and withering away, as someone said. What can you see happening in the next weeks or so? Uh, I can see very well what's happening. Mr. Vikram Singh will have to go. If he doesn't go, he'll be assassinated. Mr. Rajapaksa and all his goons will be back where they left off and swindle what is left of the country and fill their pockets. Well, that's what we've been doing, and that's what Mr. Sinisena said he was going to put a stop to. The, you see, the, the other problem is the people who can do something about it, which is the UN Human Rights Council, they are not interested. I mean, to them, Sri Lanka is just a dot in the Indian Ocean. That China there, who wants a foothold in Sri Lanka for the, the trade route to China, to and from China. America wants a foothold because they want to keep the Chinese out. And India wants a foothold because they want neither America nor China. So that's a battle going on at a higher level. But I really don't see that this is a big deal. It is a big deal. But it's a deal that was coming, the fact that it has come, I hate to say this, and that is, I told you so. But I did. I did tell people nearly six months ago, sooner or later, Mr. Vikramasinghe and Mr. Sinsena will part company because I saw the cracks appearing. And uh, it's only a question of time before either Vikramasinghe gets kicked out or Sinsena gets kicked out. Is what you've been saying is that it's in the interest of China that Sri Lanka is a failed state? Oh, it is very much in the interest of China because China can now take over the whole of Sri Lanka. It has taken over about a third of Sri Lanka, that's for sure. But to have uh, Rajapaksa back is very much in the interest of China. To have anybody other than Rajapaksa is not in the China's interest. It was in the United States' interest but not China. China will welcome this. In fact, I won't be surprised if China has already told Mr. Rajapaksa, don't worry, if there is an uprising, we will come to your assistance. But what about the economy? The economy is in shambles. The economy is such that we are in debt, and the debt repayment will not be made even in the next 50 years. I just told you that the Chinese bank alone is $8 billion debt. 
the debt to uh, the International Monetary Fund to so many other countries that have lent Sri Lanka money is in the billions, not the millions, billions. They, they, they realize that that money is not going to be paid back. They can't because Sri Lanka doesn't have any money. Where to from now? Where to from now? We can uh, open the gates in Australia for the, the Sri Lankans to come, not only the Tamil people from the north and the uh, east, but even the Sinhalese people will flee the country because you can't live in a country with a crook like Rajapaksa and his brother, they'll all be back. So what happened three years ago was just a waste of time because Sirisena was voted in. People don't seem to realize that Sirisena and the Rajapaksas have been friends from day one. Sirisena was the general secretary of Rajapaksa's party. And the fact that they split was purely temporary, and, and it's a pseudo-split. I think that the West will have to realize that we've got a failed state here, and uh, people are going to flee the country and come as refugees and asylum seekers. Mr. Scott Morrison, for example, has to wake up to the fact that he's going, uh, what he will do, of course, is uh, he will deny that there are any asylum seekers from Sri Lanka. I mean, he can do as the hell he wants. But uh, there are boatloads coming, and uh, they are being drowned because they are being turned back to be sent back to Sri Lanka, knowing full well that that is a violation of the Refugee Convention. This country, never mind about Sri Lanka, this country, Australia, is guilty of violating the Refugee Convention, which was signed and ratified by Australia. Just finally, Brian, is there a connection, or what is the connection between... Rajapaksa, Sirisena, and the right-wing Buddhists? I don't think Rajapaksa wants any group, right-wing or left-wing or anything. What he wants is the Rajapaksas, and the Rajapaksas are there. He doesn't care whether it's a left-wing or right-wing or any other wing group, as long as every single position in the government is held by uh, Rajapaksa or one of his family members. When Rajapaksa quit or was thrown out, he had 46 members of his family. 75% of the budget, the national budget, Sri Lankan budget, 75% was controlled by one or other of the Rajapaksa family. That's autocracy. And the brother who's now in US, he'll be back? Uh, he'll come back to an even bigger job than he held. But they'll all be back. Uh, Rajapaksa's sons will bring their $5 million luxury cars and come back. No, it will be all back to square one. It already is. But this was just a disaster waiting to happen. And am I surprised? Not at all. I would have been both surprised if this went on for any uh, further length of time. I'm surprised that it went on for three years. I thought it would be all over in two years or a year. Thank you so much. Uh, that's all right. And that's Brisbane-based human rights activist Dr. Brian Sinwaratna, formerly from Sri Lanka. Are you 18 years and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? 
Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. Nautilus, are you nuts? That's the question asked by Papua New Guinea Mine Watch of Canadian mining company Nautilus, who are planning to begin deep sea mining off the coast of PNG. And the reason to report that, the United States Geographic Survey reported that a magnitude 7.0 earthquake struck close to the proposed Salawa 1 deep sea mining project in PNG at 7.30am on the 12th of October and this follows a magnitude 6.6 quake nearby in March. I'm speaking with Dr Helen Rosenbaum, the deep sea mining campaign coordinator and Helen goes back decades working with grassroots groups in PNG opposing the exploitation of their resources and the resulting human rights and environmental consequences. When I first interviewed Helen, it concerned all of the above at the Octeti Mine, which began in 1984. Yes, well, it was Octeti, and the... Australian angle on it, I guess, was really um, possible impacts it might have in the Torres Strait with the, the pollution from the mine coming down through the Fly River system into the Gulf of Papua and the Torres Strait. But at that time, you know, the big hook for us was really BHP, you know, the big Australian. <laughs> so we justified our involvement in campaigning against the impacts of that mine by saying, you know, this is a company that most Australians are proud of and look what it's doing in Papua New Guinea out of sight. And what was it doing? Well, it was just dumping tons of mine waste, 60,000 tonnes from memory. It's been a long time since I've looked at the figures, actually, um, a day into the Octeti and then um, the Fly River system, which is a massive river system, a couple of thousands of kilometres long. The Putnia Guinea government, being ever corruptible, <laughs> was very um, complicit in this and was quite comfortable with declaring the Octeti a sacrifice zone. So it became a sacrifice zone. Um, I don't know what it kind of thought the people along the Octeti, the villagers who have been living there for, you know, thousands of years, were going to do when they could never, no longer support themselves. People who had very healthy diets from fish and uh, vegetables, they were able to grow on the floodplains and um, the river banks and fresh water supply. Everything, was their, their lifestyle and their, their health was just ruined. So turning self-sufficient, healthy people into people dependent on white rice and tin fish from local food stores, foreigners again benefited from. So, you know, the whole thing was just crazy in terms of impacts on local people. And it ended up in court? Well, it ended up in court. Slater and Gordon, Melbourne-based law company, took it up on behalf of landholders. The battle raged um, for oh, several years, I think, um, maybe three years all up, with the company finding ways to delay it. And in the end, a out-of-court settlement was reached as a pragmatic decision by Slater and Gordon because the bills were mounting and... Um, you know, they'd done a great job going as long as they could. 
and the out-of-court settlement was for monetary compensation to the landholders. So kind of an acknowledgement from the HP of the impacts it had, but it didn't include any conditions of it or, you know, terms on which it was going to continue operating in the future. So until today, the mine still dumps all those tons of waste into the river system. And the environmental impacts of that to this day? Early on in the piece, even before I became involved with the project, a team of people from the ACF were invited to come on a tour by the company. It was a bit of a greenwash tour, I suppose. That was the company's intention. Naively, I suppose, and as an apparent gesture of goodwill, they gave our team documents and when the team came back I became involved in analysing those documents and going through them with a fine tooth comb and having a PhD in scientific research it was sort of kind of a very interesting task for me to do to sort of really analyse some of their scientific research and the environmental impact statement support documents. So we wrote a report based on that where we predicted all sorts of impacts that were going to occur and the company was very cross with us for using those documents and denied that you know any of those impacts were going to occur. But of course they have <laughs> and the companies sort of, um, once they did, and the, the main impacts, I guess, um, the, the most visible impacts that they did have to um, do a big mea culpa on was the flooding of the wetlands uh, lower down in the Fly River system with polluted sediment. So basically the clogging up of these vibrant wetlands that were places where fish and other organisms, you know, kind of nursery areas for those organisms and um, sort of like the food bowl for the Fly River area just got clogged up with um, sediment, you know, that was laden with heavy metals and plants died along that area. So and they were forced to admit anyone flying over that area could just see, you know, acres and acres or, you know, I don't kilometres of dead riverbank and floodplain beyond that and people haven't been able to grow food there, still can't grow their food crops where they used to. They're frightened to grow sago in that area. When I went there later and visited the mouth of the Fly River when I was working with International Women's Development Agency, met people who the organisation we were supporting, a small organisation called Echo Seeds, had done a great job of raising awareness and these people were really articulate and really able to voice their concerns about um, their fear of eating the, the food that had been, the food that had sustained them for generations before, um, they were now frightened to eat seafood and their sago plants and other vegetable crops because of fear of contamination by heavy metals. And I just remember sitting around and, you know, village after village, you know, hearing um, people voice in such a clear way these very valid fears and feeling, you know, totally powerless to do anything really to help them. I remember coming back and trying to raise it again in the media here in Australia, background briefing, ABC Radio National had done a fantastic job of raising the issue and had actually won a Walkley Award for the program in which they did do that. But um, that was old news by then. No one was interested in these Papua New Guineans, you know, being 
whose lives were totally altered and um, and were now suffering from malnutrition. Just going back to the court decision, there were mixed feelings about that, weren't there? Uh, well, I had very mixed feelings because um, on one hand it, seemed, it did seem superficially like a David and Goliath type victory. But on the other hand, it left the landowners without what they needed. They were still facing pollution. I had a quick injection of money, which actually didn't really help them. When I went back there later and um, had the opportunity to meet um, villagers who had received compensation payments from the company, a very gendered um, outcome in that in those communities, uh, women don't really leave the villages very much, not unless it's something very important and with the, their men folk or with the permission of their families and their husbands. And so men were going into the small local towns and frittering away the money, drinking it, buying goods that required electricity to run when they came back to the village and there was no electricity run, so it was totally useless. So, you know, families and women and children, you know, didn't really benefit from from this compensation payout. That wasn't actually the answer. The, the answer was for the company and the government to take responsibility for what had happened and to stop the dumping of mine waste and to actually take some serious steps towards rehabilitating if that is actually possible. At that time, Helen, did you feel as though you'd done all you could? A more naive campaigner in those days. We did a lot with very little resources and I've reflected over the years on what I, I could have done differently. I think what could have been different um, and would have been better is to have a much more grassroots approach. We weren't a community development organisation, we were an Australian-based campaigning organisation. We didn't work sufficiently with people at local level who were also fighting the mine and I think had we built a or helped facilitate and been part of a strong grassroots movement that would have been um, perhaps more successful in, in shifting the focus of the government and the company. But, you know, that is the approach I've taken into my work since then and in the work with the, the Deep Sea Mining campaign. But when you also look at the Papua New Guinea government, which over the years I think has just become more and more corrupt and less and less caring about the plight of the common person in Papua New Guinea, I don't know. I don't know if it would make a difference or not. It would have made a difference to do that or not. Were you the only outside group working with the people or were there, were there NGOs within PNG or were... What was the situation? Because it was a huge issue, this mine. Yes, well, we had a memorandum, as ACF had a memorandum of understanding with an organisation that doesn't exist anymore called the Melanesian Environment Foundation, MEF. And uh, we were collaborating on this issue of, of, of Teddy and... That was in part an acknowledgement of um, what, I, what I just had spoken about, about us not having directly those grassroots connections. So that was by way of 
I suppose achieving that, that grassroots uh, solidarity by working with an organisation that did have those networks on the ground. But yes, I think it's fair to say we're pretty much the only outside activist sort of advocacy organisation. There were some German researchers that also wrote a paper on Octeti. And back then, um, there was also some interest from the organisation that was the predecessor to Oxfam Australia, which was back then a, a much smaller organisation as well, Community Aid Abroad. So that's kind of a bit of a blast from the past, I guess, thinking back to to CAA. And yes, they did um, support our work and collaborate with us. And we did have some, you know, some of it was fun. We had some fun with um, uh, landowners in, in Australia at a, um AGM that BHP held in Melbourne. And CAA actually brought out two key landowners, or three key landowners, I think. And we all trotted off to the AGM together and we had a very large group of people, um, all ages, and sexes at the at the microphones. The poor BHP beleaguered chairman couldn't couldn't actually pick a you know, he was looking around the room trying to find someone that looked like they'd be more conservative and not raise a hairy question about Og Teddy and we had them all covered <laughs> he got bombarded with Og Teddy and and delivered um a, uh, a dead fish, which was from Victoria Market nearby, but um, you know, but as symbolic of what by one of the landowners, uh, but symbolic of what the Octeti River landowners were feeling were you know washing up on their shores. You said you worked for IWDA after that. Were you in PNG originally, or but did you go to Asia? I worked for IWDA, I was their Pacific Program Manager, so I did have a focus on Papua New Guinea, Vanuatu and Fiji, but originally when I worked there I also took on their Mekong portfolio, so at that time it was, it was a Cambodia project actually, with a really great women's organisation called Bante Srey in Cambodia. But my very first field trip to Cambodia was just occurred at the same time as uh, the coup, um, Prince Runnerid and Hun Sen were were having a little bit of um, a war between their two private armies, and where I was staying was caught kind of in the middle, and actually did suffer a little bit of post traumatic stress after that. So I, I didn't go back to um, Cambodia for IWDA after that. I just um, yeah. I, um, I stuck to, to the Pacific solely. What happened there? There was a bit of gunfire and a, oh, and some gunfire and tanks going past, missiles going overhead. Um, it occurred over a weekend and I was staying with friends and we spent most of the weekend hiding under a very solid table at the back of their house. But um, we knew that we wouldn't be intentional targets. Well, we thought it wouldn't be intentional targets. But, and only I think one foreign worker was killed and that was kind of by accident. But there were missiles going overhead and we just hoped that they um, <laughs> didn't drop short. Not that we, you know, yeah, you know, we didn't really want them to land at all where they were landing either. But it was just, yeah, it was just a very frightening time, actually. And as you said, you ended up with the, the people who are 
impacted by octetti? Oh yes, back in, um, in the mouth of the Fly River, uh, where when I thought I was just going to um, you know learn new things and deal with new issues and um, try and um, yeah leave that behind in some way, I guess I guess I did feel a little bit of a, a failure because um, I think of Taina you can feel um, you know a lot of responsibility for the work that you do, which is. Perhaps in a way, um, a slight arrogance as well, but you know, I, I think it comes from a good place. Yeah, Octeti hadn't finished with me at that point, <laughs> and you know, and to this day, I you know, I continue to um, worry about what's happening on the river system there, and I, I haven't re-engaged with that particular issue anymore. We're now on to deep sea mining. When did you become involved with that issue? Oh, well, this campaign's in its eighth year now, and it really started um, when I was working as a consultant post-IWDA, and I was working in the area around the site of the Solwara One Mine, the, the world's first licensed deep-sea mine, uh, which hasn't yet begun but has been granted its operating licence by the Papua government. And I was working in East New Britain with the East New Britain Social Action Committee and doing a series of trainings with workers from East New Britain. And through that, we're meeting people from some of the other smaller islands, um, some people from New Ireland province uh, and Duke of York Islands attended our workshops and especially through the Duke of York Islanders, I was really hearing about this Solwara One mine and, you know, picking up from them really this sense of fear and urgency to sort of find out what was going on with this mine and a lot of confusion about where this mine was up to uh, in terms of its applications process and approvals and permits and, and whether it actually started at that time or not. When I finished um, that piece of work, I, I spoke to other long-time colleagues from Mining Watch Canada and Mineral Policy Institute in Australia about um, what we might be able to do to uh, to address these concerns that uh, that um, local islanders had. So we thought we'd put together a report and the idea at the time was that we would compile information so that people would know the status of this mine and leave it at that. So we did do a, a comprehensive report. Another Papua New Guinean organisation, CELCOR, the Central for Environmental Law and Community Rights, was involved with that as well. And at the end of that, we... we had a, a really nice report. We created a, a website. My colleague Nat Lowry, who's a great web designer and graphic designer, made our report and website look extremely professional. And uh, we created a website to host our report. Um, we handed this report over to the Papua New Guinea NGO we we're working with, CELCOR, and said, go for it. Telcor had to think about it and ended up coming back saying that they were really stretched on uh, working on forestry issues and could we could we work with them on this? We ended up forming a campaign which we never actually expected to do, and we had no idea that this campaign would still this campaign this small campaign organisation would still exist eight years later. So uh, yeah, that's that's where we are. 
As um, a person interested or working with scientific research, what did you find when you looked into this project? Well, we found yet again another shonky environmental impact statement. It's really disheartening. I mean, I guess it happens the world over. It happens in developed countries as well as in developing countries. Although we're able to, you know, raise concerns and analyse it and argue it, argue more the case in developed countries. We have the same situation here with fracking and coughing gas and, you know, so it's not just isolated to um, impoverished countries with communities who are semi-literate. But um, what we found was another shonky environmental impact statement with lots of gaps in the impacts that they should have looked at and um, modelled and sort of half-hearted attempts to present oceanographic information. An oceanographer um, came out of the woodwork, um, someone who had actually worked on with other organisations in Papua New Guinea on the Ramu nickel mine and offered to have a look at in detail at the oceanographic aspects of the environmental impact statement for us and found that the research was properly probably um, conducted quite well by the consultants who were contracted by the company, but what was presented in the report was a kind of, you know, let's blind the <laughs> public science kind of approach with lots of di- complex diagrams and very short on information. And um, what um, Dr. John Lewis, Luke actually found was that actually when you dig deeper there is great cause for concern because there are currents, um, vertical currents called upwellings and horizontal currents that could carry pollutants from the mine site towards New Ireland and Duke of York and most likely East New Britain provinces. What we found was you know, great cause for concern basically and that the many risks that do exist with a, a new untested mining approach such as deep sea mining were validated and um, but the EIS didn't actually even identify all the risks uh, which is what the purpose of an environmental impact statement is is to identify the risks clearly so the environmental management plan can address them so we've got a very flawed environmental impact statement and we're yet to see anything that looks like an environmental management plan at all and the company intends to start mining next year. I'm speaking with Dr Helen Rosenbaum, the Deep Sea Mining Campaign Coordinator, and this is 3CR Tuesday Home Time. Well, it looks as though the company mightn't even be valid by then. Their shares have gone down so much in the last year or so. Yes, well, that that is our hope. Um, (laughs) And we've... (laughs) Although, you know, um, the question is then, you know, what what will happen to this company? It's very dependent at the moment on its two major shareholders, which are both private companies, so not publicly accountable to anyone, a Russian company and a a company from Oman. And uh, they have pretty tight control of the board through um, family members and the Nautilus, their own boards, but also the Nautilus board. The CEO, the former CEO, had just resigned when their share prices fell even further. Our campaign has been working hard to try and encourage the share prices to, to fall by talking to financial institutions 
our research has shown, um, research we contracted has shown to be the most likely financial institutions to be approached by Nautilus. Uh, we've been in correspondence with um, many of those institutions, um, just alerting them to the risks of CPO and um, this particular project, um, the Seoul World One project. Also, in view of what's happening in Papua New Guinea at the moment with other projects that people are not happy with and are taking up arms against in the highlands and most recently in the CPIC. The Solar One site is not very far from Bougainville and Bougainville's had a very violent history of civil uprising over that was triggered over um, the impacts of a mine site as well, the Bougainville Copper Mine founding the Bismarck Sea where the Solwell One site is are very well aware of that history and in fact, you know, they have relatives, they've married, you know, people are very close geographically and culturally in that area and there's sort of marriage and family links between those places and Bougainville and um, I've, um, I've been told that they're not going to take the advent of the, of the Solwell One mine uh, lying down. They will rise up against it if they can't do that through political means. I've heard them say that they will do it through other means. You know, let's hope it doesn't come to that. And then into the equation comes recent earthquakes. Ah, yes, the recent earthquakes. This is something that we alerted um, when we did our assessments of the EIS. We said, where are you factoring in the fact that this is a very seismically active area? Rabaul famously was obliterated, what, 40-plus years ago by the volcano next to it. And there continues to be earthquakes. You know, it's just a regular feature of, of life there. It is actually like, for a mine like the Solwara One mine, it should be seen as part of the normal operating conditions. The equipment hasn't um, even been tested. It's equipment that's been adapted from the oil and gas industry and also land-based mining. The, the equipment's supposed to be operated at a depth of 1.6 kilometres under the surface of the ocean. Even without seismic activity, the conditions there are rather extreme. Really high pressures, very chemically active. There's uh, hydrothermal vents at that area, which are like mini geysers that are constantly spewing out this plumes of sulfitic minerals that accumulate around the hydrothermal vents and that's actually what um, they want to mine, these sulfitic minerals. There's a really kind of severe temperature mixing zone there because what's coming out of the hydrothermal vents is very hot but the water at the bottom at 1.6 kilometres down is very cold which also gives rise to these really unique ecosystems which is you know another cause for concern that these very unusual and um, ecosystems that are never that you know contain species that are found nowhere else on the planet will be just obliterated as well by seabed mining but the equipment has never been tested at, under those conditions at all there's been this muddy shallow puddle um, on an island called Motokea Island that equipment is sat in for a little while and then they took them out to, to sea in shallow waters for a bit but no one knows how the equipment's going to perform down there and what kind of 
damage um, could happen to the equipment anyway. And then on top of all the heavy machinery that's going to be flattening hydrothermal vents and churning up and creating um, plumes of of sediment that are going to be carried by currents um, in all sorts of directions. There's the riser pipe, this 1.6 kilometre pipe going from the bottom right up to a barge at the top to carry the ore slurry. One can only just imagine what what happened when there's a a magnitude 7 earthquake in the vicinity of that and what happens to pipe six kilometres long. You know, the breakage of a pipe carrying slurry, just a horrendous thought actually. The reefs of the Duke of York Islands, the the New Island Province and East New Britain, these beautiful reefs that thriving ecosystems and actually just the, the start of a, a small tourism industry um, which is starting to grow over there. Papua New Guinea's, you know, hasn't been a tourist hotspot because of the risks, personal safety risks put people off there, but these islands are actually very calm, quiet places in terms of personal safety, peaceful places. The tourism industry has just been gradually growing in terms of surfers and, and fishers and scuba divers. All of that's going to be jeopardised by seabed mining even under normal conditions without a breakage of a of a riser pipe. But if something like that occurs it's just a it's just a disaster waiting to happen. And just to remind people that if this did go ahead it's the precedent for what might happen in many other places around the Pacific and elsewhere as well. There's already millions of square kilometres of seabed under exploration licence both in um, what's called the EEZ, the Exclusive Economic Zones of Countries, the, the national waters, and in the area that the International Seabed Authority, United Nations Authority, has been granting life, uh, exploration licences. That area is actually called the area, <laughs> strangely enough. And um, there's about 23 companies that have been granted exploration licenses, licenses to date by the ISA. And the ISA is madly working towards developing a regulatory regime to allow exploitation. So, you know, it can move from granting exploration licenses to exploitation licenses. And we're working with others around the world, um, many colleagues in Europe, trying to bring some sense to the ISA, um, raising concerns about the application of the precautionary principle and another principle called EFPIC, the Free Prior Informed Consent of Indigenous and peoples and other communities to such an unprecedented industry. You know, the ocean, our oceans are on the brink as it is. You know, we really need to stop doing business as usual for the survival of our oceans. Or within the next two decades, we're just going to see, you know, a huge unravelling. Our oceans have been, you know, so resilient until now. And that's even without seabed mining. So, you know, we, we really got to rethink the way we treat the planet. Well, we started off, Helen, talking about the irresponsibility and otherwise of mining on land, so there's no joy in people thinking about what mining companies might do in the middle of the ocean where people aren't watching. Well, one of the 
um, Nautilus is selling points to investors. They've become a little bit more discreet about it, but they used to even have it in their public documents telling investors that this is a form of mining where you're less accountable because you're out of sight, out of mind. There are no communities at the mine site to raise alarm bells. You know, companies, the, the, the seabed mining companies that have formed so far actually see that as a, um, as a plus, that they're, um, they're so far out of, they, they've, you know, they can't be scrutinised. And it's no accident that the first one to be licensed has been in Putney Guinea. Putney Guinea has no capacity to monitor and manage what happens on land, let alone 0.6 kilometres under just even in relation to this, um, these two seismic events that have occurred this year, there's no disaster management plan in place. Papua Guinea has no capacity at provincial level or at national level to handle a disaster of that scale should arise a pipe break or even a disaster that occurs as a result of normal operating of the seabed mine. You've got plenty of work to do yet. Yes. <laughs> The great thing about it is that there is a really vibrant network now in Papua New Guinea through the Alliance of Solwara Warriors of really articulate, strong, motivated people who are speaking up in their local communities. The churches in Papua New Guinea um, have become quite um, alert to this issue. Uh, just last week there was a meeting of the PNG Council of Churches in Port Moresby, their land and oceans meeting, and annual meeting, and um, a feature of that meeting was a presentation by Sir Arnold Armit, who is the, a former Attorney General for Papua New Guinea, on seabed mining. He was also a former governor for Madang province. He's kind of retired from those official positions now, but really feels some responsibility because he says that the Solwara 1 mine was approved under his watch. He was insufficiently informed at the time to um, know it was a bad idea, and he's now busy raising awareness about that. And, yeah, the community voices are, are strong in Papua New Guinea at the moment. I think there's a good chance with everything, the financial aspects and the community resistance, um, I think there's a really good chance of knocking Solwara 1 on their head. And that will slow down the development of seabed mining worldwide and um, perhaps at a point we can become a more sane society. Uh, another, another angle we advocate is the promotion of urban mining because seabed mining and other forms of mining are justified on the basis of requiring more minerals, especially rare earths for you know, the electronic gadgets we all need, apparently. At the same time, we have piles, mountains of electronic waste in developing countries that are currently being recycled in really dangerous ways. And there are researchers, including in Australia, making inroads into commercialising safe, what's become called um, urban mining. Perhaps there will be a day where we have um, a small number of very well-managed mines around the world most of our minerals will be sourced from from urban mines of electronic waste and other waste. Look forward to that. Thank you so much, Helen. And that was Dr. Helen Rosenbaum, who's the coordinator of the deep sea mining 
anti-deep sea mining campaign. Talking about, first of all, Octeti, who worked many years ago, and then last, the campaign to stop deep sea mining, not only in PNG, but all through the Pacific and in oceans right around the world. You think they've done enough damage on land, don't let them do it on the ocean as well. That's about all I've got, but I'll couple more community announcements and a song and I'll be off. Are you 18 years and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. Coming up in a couple of minutes' time, we have Done By Law, but let's um, go at the program today with No, No, No from Archie Roach. Bye for now. 